Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 13, Gospel according to Luke chapter 13, and we're reading from verse 10 through to 21. Luke chapter 13, and we're beginning at verse 10. Now he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Trevor. Um, And just to echo what Caroline was saying there about Hope Explored, thank you so much for for praying for it. Um, It was a really good start on Tuesday night. Um, Good to be together, uh, good time to look at Luke's gospel together um, and a couple of incidents in Jesus' life and how they show him to be this powerful, mighty God. Um, And... Uh, just to say, if you're someone who couldn't make it on Tuesday night, but you'd be interested in coming along, don't feel like because you've missed session one, you can't come to the, the next sessions. Do please come on Tuesday night. It'd be great to have you. Um, and you'll be, you'll be very welcomed into one of the groups um, that we have. Um, now, we're into a new year. Uh, what are we, like the 20th, are we? I can't even, don't even know what date it is today. Something like that. Um, we're into a new year, and I, I was, they were talking on Cool FM this week about how lots of people still are saying Happy New Year, and they were like, I think the time's gone for that. But whenever you come into January, it is kind of a time that people do a lot of like reevaluating of their lives. Um, the things that uh, they're giving themselves to, they start to think a bit more about that. Um, the things that, that they're investing in, so to speak, uh, maybe you've done a bit of that at the start of this new year. Uh, maybe you've reevaluated things. You've looked at the things that you're giving yourself to, the time that you're investing in different things. Maybe um, you've decided to make a few changes and you've, you've said, right, you know, I'm going to give myself more to health and fitness. Um, you've invested in a gym membership. That happens a lot in January. Um, you've changed things in your diet uh, to see the health benefits in 2024. Maybe you've decided to invest this year uh, really in your career or or your business. You've set out goals that you'd like to achieve uh, in your job in 2024. Maybe you've evaluated things and thought, you know what, I'm going to invest more in family 
Uh, in my family life, I want to invest myself more in my kids, uh, in my spouse, in my parents. Uh, or maybe you, you've thought, you know what, I want to invest more in, in this church family. Um, I, I've started coming along in the last year, and I really want to get stuck in, uh, invest in the life of this church, invest in relationships with others who will help me to grow in following Jesus here in Belfast. So there's lots of things uh, that, that we're investing ourselves in. Um, and those investments, they'll all show in the way then that we live our lives. They'll shape how we spend our time, our energy, our money, our resources. What we're really going after and we're prioritizing life, it will show in the way that we live our lives. Now, with that kind of theme in mind, the question I think that Jesus is asking us over and over again in this section of Luke's gospel is, will you invest in me and my kingdom? Will you say yes to me and live for me and my kingdom above everything else? Will you value the things that I value? Will you go after the things which matter most to me? Will you invest your life in me and my kingdom? And you know, in this section, you probably felt it a bit last week, Jesus is really turning the heat up, isn't he? Uh, he's turning the heat up on what it means to invest in him. Because Jesus knows that for lots of these people who are following after him, who are coming and listening to him teach, they need to actually really decide whether they're going to invest in him or not. The time is coming for them to do that. The window to say yes to him, it's going to close one day. It won't last forever. Jesus said that last week. No one knows when that window of opportunity to turn to him will actually close. But Jesus says, it will happen one day. And so, time and time again, he's encouraging the people to turn to him, to make that decision now to invest in him, to repent. That's the word he uses, repent and believe in me. Trust in me. Let me take you where I am going. Trust in me and my kingdom. And as we'll see, Jesus, he isn't after partial investments. He doesn't just want parts of us, the parts we're happy to give him, the parts which we maybe are more comfortable to give him because they don't cost us as much. No, he's after all of us, all of our lives. We're either all in with Jesus or we're all out. There's no middle ground. He's really clear in all that he says in this section about that. No partial investments, either invest in everything in him or invest in nothing in him at all. And I suppose the question that we might ask in this section then is, well, well, why? Why, Jesus? Why would I choose to invest everything in him? Why would I say yes to him, everything I have, everything I am? Why would I entrust it all to him? And maybe it's a question that, that you're asking yourself this morning. Um, maybe you've been coming along for a wee while and Right now, you've not invested in Jesus and his kingdom. You've not said yes to him. You're thinking about it. You're, you're considering him, who he is, what he claims to offer, but you haven't seen just enough yet to make you turn to him and trust in him. If that's you, it's really good that you're here. It's brilliant that you're here, and especially at this time as we study Luke's gospel, because what Luke is doing in his gospel is just presenting us 
a really clear picture of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ offers to us. So it couldn't be a better time for you to consider him and that decision to follow him. For others of us in the room, probably more of us, I'm guessing, we are someone who has said yes to Jesus and his kingdom. We have invested in him. We are trusting in him. And maybe right now in life, for whatever reason, we're wondering if we've made the right choice with our investment. We're maybe discouraged by things that are going on in this world or in our lives. We're wondering what what God is doing, if anything at all. Well, I hope for you that that this passage is another encouragement, another reminder of why Jesus is totally worth our investment in life, all of our lives. Not just a partial investment, but everything that we are, everything that we have, trusting in him. This passage, I've broken up into two sections. The story in verse 10 to 17 of this woman that's healed from her disabling spirit is the first section, and I think it helps us understand or answer that question as to why Jesus is worth our investment, why it's worth investing in Jesus and his kingdom. And then related to that, we've got that second section, verses 18 to 20, which I think shows us, for those of us who have invested in Jesus and who are trusting in him, it it kind of shows us what investing in Jesus should be like, what we should expect of our investment. Jesus, he's kind of adjusting expectations about life in his kingdom so that we don't get discouraged, so that we don't despair or or think of backing out. So that's where we're going to go. Why don't I pray for us? Uh, Because I feel like I need God's help this morning. Maybe you do in in listening. Uh, But let's pray and let's ask for God's help uh, as we turn to his word. Lord God, we thank you that you choose to speak to us this morning, that you choose to reveal yourself to us. Even though you are the almighty God far above everything in this world, Lord, you, you come to us and you meet us here. Lord, we thank you for your tenderness, for your compassion, for your care for your people. Lord, at times we maybe feel weak, we maybe feel discouraged, We maybe wonder what's going on in this world and in our lives. Uh, But Lord, even in that, thank you that you come and and you minister to us by your spirit. You speak to us by your word. And I pray this morning that you would turn us back to you, that we would see you and your glory and your goodness, and that we would trust in you more deeply and know that saying yes to Jesus is absolutely worth it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why is Jesus and his kingdom worth investing in our lives? And well, I think Luke shows us really simply that it's because, first of all, Jesus is the only one with the power to transform lives. He's the only one with the power to transform lives. Look at verses 10 and 11. Let me read it for us. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, the first thing I want you to kind of clock here is when and where this episode happens. In a Sabbath, uh, on a a Sabbath, sorry, in a synagogue. And now we should know by now, studying Luke's gospel, that that he doesn't waste a word. Every detail is there for a reason. And we're going to see why this is a significant detail, hopefully in a wee while. So Jesus is there. He's preaching in this synagogue on the Sabbath. This is actually the last time that Luke records him doing that in his gospel. And in the congregation... 
was a woman who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. Luke says she was bent over and couldn't straighten herself up at all. Now, just think of the the plight of this woman for a moment. Uh, Maybe if you're someone who who suffers from chronic illness, chronic physical illness, you maybe understand a little bit of her pain or what she's going through. Um, Medics would say that she probably suffered from a condition that fused her spinal cord together. She's probably physically in constant pain. It's an incredibly debilitating and restrictive condition. She's beyond the help of human hands, we can assume, because she's had it for so long. But it doesn't just affect her physically. Think of the emotional and the social implications of an illness like this. It's a really visible deformity. She can't hide her condition. So you can imagine all eyes being on her as she shuffled into the synagogue to take her seat. Think of how difficult it must have been for her to have a conversation with someone else. Never been able to look someone else in the eye as she spoke to them. Always eyes on the floor, having to strain her whole body to even just look around. And she's lived like this for 18 years, 18 long years. I'm sure she she often wondered if her life would ever change, if things would ever get better for her. I'm sure there were times of feeling completely hopeless, completely powerless to her situation. This woman is a picture of brokenness of pain, of suffering. But I want you to notice something about the way that Luke describes her condition, how he emphasizes a spiritual element to this woman's plight. You see that? In verse 11, he talks about her having a disabling spirit. Verse 16, Jesus says that she's a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years. Now, what does all that mean? Well, Luke, he was a a medical doctor, so I don't think Luke is minimizing the physical condition of this woman in any way. But I think he wants us to see that there is a spiritual dimension to this illness as well. In some way, Satan has his hand on this woman's life. He's enslaved her. He's bound her. And so if this woman is to be healed, there's a sense in which she needs to be freed from Satan's grip. She's not demon-possessed. I I don't think that's what Luke is showing us here because there are other times that we've got in Luke's gospel of of demon possession and Jesus healing someone from that. But do you notice Jesus doesn't directly address the spirit when when he heals her? So it's not an exorcism. But there's definitely a spiritual dimension going on here. So what is Luke trying to show us? Well, I don't think... Luke wants us to to read this and start looking for specific spiritual or demonic activity behind every specific physical ailment that we might have in life. If we get sick with the flu, or if we have chronic back pain, we're not to start looking for the specific spirits which might be at work there in those illnesses. What I think Luke is saying is that, that we get sick, we have debilitating conditions like this, our bodies, they falter and they fail, because we live in a broken world, in a world that is marred by the effects of sin, a world that is out of kilter with its creator. Disease, deformity, death, pain, suffering, heartache, they were not part of the perfect world that God created in the beginning. 
But ever since the beginning, when humanity listened to the lies of Satan and turned away from God and his ways, Satan and his forces of evil, they have infiltrated this world and they have gotten to work destroying God's creation, wreaking havoc in human lives. Now, it's important to say that that doesn't mean that we as humanity, we bear no responsibility for the evil and the strife and the brokenness that we see in this world. On one level, we are culpable. We all as human beings have turned away from our creator God. We've all sinned and gone astray. So we do shoulder responsibility for the sin and the suffering and the evil which has infected our world. But in another sense, we are victims. We have been taken captive by Satan. We're bound by him. And that means that if all of God's creation, including us, is going to be restored to the way it was meant to be, to the way that God created things to be in the beginning, then Satan's hold, his grip on this world and on human lives needs to be broken. Sin needs to be dealt with. Satan needs to be defeated. And this is the very reason Jesus came. It's the very reason Jesus went to the cross, in fact, because he died to free us from the penalty of sin that we deserve to bear. But he also died to free us from the power of Satan that we are all enslaved to. See, ever since the beginning, when sin and suffering and evil flooded into God's perfect world, God promised to send someone who would break the power of Satan forever. He promised someone who would come and crush Satan's head, someone with the power to fix this broken world and to fix broken lives, to set human hearts free. And when Jesus stepped onto the stage of human history, that is exactly what we see him do. Time and time again throughout Luke's gospel, he confronts the power of Satan over human lives. And time and time again, he powerfully sets people free. And do you remember when and where Jesus told people that this was what he came to do? Do you remember? Chapter four of Luke's gospel. In a synagogue on a Sabbath day. I think Luke wants us to make that connection between this passage and what Jesus said when he first started his ministry. Because on that Sabbath, in that synagogue, Jesus stood up in chapter 4, verse 18, 19, and he announced what he had been sent by God to do. And he said this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, I've come to bring freedom, to bring freedom to those in captivity. I've come to set the oppressed free. And this passage, along with so many others, is proof that Jesus isn't just all chat, that he really does have the power to transform lives. Look at verse 12 and what Jesus does for this woman, bound by Satan for 18 years. But when he saw her, he called her and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Do you see how Luke uses words that relate to this idea of bondage and enslavement? See that? He doesn't say 
you're healed of your disability. He says you are freed of your disability. Jesus sees into this woman's heart. He he sees, yes, her her physical uh, condition, but he sees into her heart and he knows that, that this is what Satan has done to her. She has this debilitating condition, physical condition, but underneath all that, she is in serious spiritual bondage. Her heart needs to be set free. And notice how Jesus does it. The power that Jesus possesses, he simply speaks. He says the word. And and Luke says, immediately she was straightened up. Not she straightened up after six months of intensive physiotherapy. Not she straightened up after a few days of bed rest and popping briefing. No, immediately. Right away. The very moment he said it, she was fixed made new, recreated almost. Such is the power and the authority of Jesus' word. His word brings freedom. We can miss how incredible this is, but I was thinking about someone who's maybe been in a car crash and their body is broken. They're trying to get back to walking again. You've maybe seen pictures of this on, on, on TV, if you've seen the news, or, or maybe you've been someone that this has uh, happened to in your life. Think of the, the work, the effort, the patience, the time that it takes to mend those broken bones, to fix things that have been put out of place, joints, ligaments, to retrain muscles to work properly again. But here is Jesus, and he speaks, and instantly, bones Spinal column, ligaments, sinews, joints, muscles, they are put back together. In some cases, they are recreated, such as the power that Jesus' word possesses. Jesus really does have the power to transform lives. That's what he does for this woman. He is setting this captive free, releasing her from Satan's clutches, restoring her to the life that God created her to live. And here's where I think all this makes sense for us, because The truth is, this woman's condition is a picture of humanity's condition apart from Jesus Christ. Like her, we too, all of us, are enslaved to the power of Satan. We are bound by our sinful nature. That's the kind of language that that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2. We talked about that last week. Uh, Ali led with that in our call to worship. John talked about that in his sermon. Paul talks about this sinful nature within each one of us that that actually cripples us spiritually. It stops us from living in the fullness of what God has created us to be. We don't flourish in life because sin stops us from doing the very thing that we were created for, worshiping God. That sinful nature that is within us, it distorts us and it mars the image of God in us. That's why we we do the things and say the things and think the things that we so often don't want to, that we wish that we didn't. It's it's often why we, we hurt others and we are hurt by others. We live feeling the effects of sin in our lives and in this broken world, and enslavement to sin and Satan leads only one way, not to spiritual life, but to spiritual death. It's a bleak picture, one that, like this woman, we are powerless to change, hopeless in and of ourselves. But the good news is Jesus 
has come to set the captives free. Jesus has the power to give freedom to oppressed people like us. He does it for this woman, and he still does it today. He's given freedom, new life to people everywhere. He has destroyed the power of Satan at the cross, and one day he will destroy Satan and all his forces of evil forever. He offers forgiveness and freedom to all who turn and trust in him, all who invest in him. And that truth should thrill us this morning. Many of us in this room, we we know the truth of that in our lives, that Jesus really does have the power to release us, to free us from all sorts of crippling things, from all all sorts of things that that stop us from from truly living the life that God has created us to be, worshiping him as we were created for. Things like drugs, alcohol, lust, a gossiping tongue, an unhealthy desire for money, more possessions that breeds this discontentment with life for every one of those deep bonds which binds us. Jesus Christ really does have the power to set us free. That doesn't mean that that we're free from the temptation to indulge or to go back to those things. Sadly, we won't experience that till heaven. Many of us will continue to struggle with those things day by day, but, but through God's power in Christ, the bonds have been broken. We can live lives of freedom in Christ. And that means that even when we do struggle with temptation, the power of Jesus Christ is at work in us by his spirit, helping us to live out this this new life, this new life of freedom in him. And I wonder if sometimes we forget that, that Jesus is the only one who's able to do that for us that we, we forget maybe that he's the only one that can do that for anyone else in our lives. Maybe you're, you're here right now and you've not said yes to Jesus. You've not chosen to invest in him and his kingdom. Do you see what Jesus is able to do for you? What saying yes to him has the potential to do for your life? Whatever it is that binds you right now, Jesus really is able to free you. Forgiveness for the sin that that leaves you guilty before God. Freedom from all that enslaves you in life. Jesus has the power to set you free, to transform your life forever. It doesn't mean that that we won't experience those, those days in life that we often talk about, disease, depression, disorder in the world, death. We will still experience those things in this world, in this life right now, but it does mean that that we will go through them, not living in our own strength, trying to overcome them, but living in the power of Jesus Christ who has already overcome. One day, we live with the hope that, that we will experience life in God's kingdom completely free from those things forever. Amen. And what about those people in our lives who maybe don't yet trust in Jesus Christ, who we live alongside each day. Thinking about people in your life right now, and maybe it seems almost impossible to you that they could ever come to know Jesus Christ. They seem so deeply entrenched in their sin, so deeply bound by their sin. How could Jesus ever free them? Well, look what Jesus does for this woman. He is the only one with the power to transform people's lives. The antagonistic colleague or friend who thinks that that you're an idiot for following Jesus Christ. The sibling or the parent who, who seems that they couldn't be more unconvinced of following Jesus if they tried. 
Jesus really does have the power to set people free, to transform their lives, to restore them to right relationship with God forever. We don't just see that in Luke's gospel. We see that as we look around this church. Lives that have been transformed forever by the power of Jesus Christ. And that's a reason to rejoice, isn't it? To praise God. That's how the woman feels in our passage. Her life has been transformed by Jesus. And Luke says in verse 13, her response is one of praise to God. She glorifies him. She knows real freedom. She knows where that freedom has come from. And so she praises God for it because of Jesus Christ. And do you know the crowd later on in verse 17, they taste some of this praise as well. But not everyone is rejoicing, are they? Look at verse 14. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. This guy's reaction, it isn't one of praise. It's one of pride pride. See, even though he has just witnessed an amazing miracle, a woman who, whose life has been transformed after 18 years of pain and suffering and hurt, a daughter of Abraham, a woman of faith who's been released from the grip of Satan, he couldn't care less about all that, could he? He's more concerned with religious rule-keeping. See, this man's heart is so hardened towards Jesus Christ. Ultimately, he and the rest of his Pharisee friends that we see throughout this section, they want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ and his kingdom. They don't want him. So much so that they're going to be willing to kill him in a few chapters' time. But it's not just that they don't want Jesus. It's that they think they don't need Jesus. They are full of pride. They think that they are fine with God on their own. They think that the, the lives they are living, they're, they're fine because of all their religious rules. They're keeping them so well. They feel that they can earn God's favor, earn salvation because of the things that they do. But Jesus is warning them time and time again, your self-righteousness will never save you. It's not good enough for God. You need me. You need to come to me, trust in me, find life in me. Because that is the only way to find salvation. That is the only way for your lives to be transformed. Jesus calls them hypocrites in verse 15. And in verses 16 and 17, those part, the bits with the, the talking about the animals, what he's basically doing is he's just exposing their hard-heartedness, the folly of their self-righteousness, how ridiculous they're being. And you know, he's even saying to them, you don't really care about the Sabbath at all. You've missed the point of the Sabbath altogether. You've forgotten that God gave the Sabbath to his people as a gift for worship so that they might worship him, to worship him and enjoy him and all the good gifts that he's given. The Sabbath was a day for resting in God's goodness, looking to him, looking forward to the ultimate rest in his kingdom forever, that time when there would be no sickness, no bent backs, no Satan, no sin. So it couldn't have been more appropriate for Jesus to heal this woman on the Sabbath because that is what he has done for her. 
Her healing is a picture of that final Sabbath rest that God promises for his people, for all who've invested in Jesus and his kingdom. It was a picture of what the Sabbath was all about, what what Jesus has the power to do for people. But in their hard-heartedness and their pride, they've missed it. They don't want it. And it's really sad, actually. Because even though they don't know it, they will be the ones who will miss out on that eternal rest in God's kingdom forever. Even though they're trying to keep the rules of the Sabbath right now, they will miss out on what the Sabbath was all about, what it was pointing forward to, because they will not come to Jesus. And doesn't that same spirit of pride keep so many people from Jesus today, from coming to him and seeking his help? People who don't think they need Jesus, people who who don't think Jesus is worth the bother. Do you see what they're missing out on? The opportunity to have their lives transformed by Jesus. The opportunity to become part of his kingdom forever. We've looked at at why Jesus and his kingdom is worth investing in. That's that first part. And much more briefly, I want to finish by looking at what Jesus says investing in him and his kingdom will actually be like what we should expect from our investment in him. Look at verse 18 to 20 for a moment because he gives these two parables and these are pictures of of what life in God's kingdom will look like to show us what the transforming power of of God's kingdom will often be like. And And he first says this, it's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in it, in its branches. So he says that the kingdom of God, it's like this tiny seed. A seed that if I was to bring one out right now and show it to you, it is barely visible to the naked eye. You could hardly see it. If I dropped it from my hand onto the floor, you wouldn't be able to find it again. It's a tiny seed. But when that seed is planted in the ground and when it grows, it it grows to become this large tree that's several feet high and that allows even the birds of the air to come and make their nest in it. That's what the kingdom of God is like, picture picture number one. And picture number two says, verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So the picture changes slightly. Jesus says uh, the kingdom is like leaven, which a woman took and hid and worked through this dough. That word hid, it's really key here. She hides it in three measures of flour. That's a lot of flour. It's probably enough to make about uh, bread for about 50 or 60 people. So it's a huge amount of flour, but a tiny bit of yeast. It's worked into the dough. And, and what the result is, it, it leavens the whole lot. What Jesus is saying is the, the effect of that yeast in proportion to the flour that it was put in it, it is incredible. It transforms the whole thing, even though we would never expect it, from something so small, so out of proportion, it it changes the whole law, such as its transforming power. Do you get what Jesus is saying? It's really, I think, pretty straightforward to understand, but the truth is it's much more difficult to believe. I think he's saying that although the kingdom of God at times appears small, weak, insignificant, hidden even. It has the power to grow and expand and transform in the most unexpected and incredible ways. 
It's like this. A group of people getting together every Monday night to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Seems so small. Maybe so ineffectual in this world. 20 people, 25 people getting together to pray. What difference could that make in the world? What difference could that make in people's lives? But Jesus says, no, that is what the kingdom of God is like. That's how I transform broken lives and transform this broken world. It's like one of God's people getting up every morning and reading their Bible 15 minutes before anyone else gets up, starting their day off in his word, setting their mind on Christ and things above, spending time alone in his presence. It's hidden. No one else maybe in this world sees it. It's done in the quiet of your own home. But Jesus says that investment, it always pays off. That's how I do my quiet, unseen work in that person's heart, transforming them from one degree of glory to the next, bearing fruit with patience in their lives. That's how I do it. It's like parents who read the Bible and pray every night with their children, who pray for them every day, who model the gospel to them in the ordinary, everyday, mundane things of life. Jesus says, that's it. That's the kingdom of God. That's investing in me and my kingdom. Although that might seem so small, so insignificant, like it's having little to no effect at all to the naked eye, Jesus says, you don't know what I am doing with that. You don't know the way I can transform lives by ordinary faithfulness like that. It's like someone who prays and prays and prays for that friend or that colleague or that family member who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Prays for opportunities to share Jesus with them. Prays for opportunities to love and serve them. Serve them. And then finally, in the most unexpected way, at the most unexpected time, the conversation just starts. A gospel conversation that you were never expecting. It moves to deeper things, to things of faith, what you believe about Jesus. The person accepts an invitation to come along on a Sunday morning here to Hope Explored on a Tuesday night. They take a Christian book that you offer to them and they read it. And the gospel seeds are planted in their heart and God is at work drawing that person to themselves. That is to himself. That is the kingdom of God at work. God's transforming power in people's lives and in this world. It seems so small, so insignificant, so weak and feeble, but yet God is able to do amazing things. I could go on and on, but this is what the kingdom of God is like. And, and we need to know this. We need to hear this because it's so easy to become discouraged in living for Jesus in this world. It's so easy to, to think that, that our investment in him and his kingdom it is not paying off at all, that nothing seems to be happening. Maybe it's because of opposition that we feel that despair or discouragement. Jesus faced so much rejection, but he says here, no, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Many people turning away, but those few whose lives are transformed. Maybe it's because of waiting, having to be patient. 
Maybe you're not seeing the fruit that you would love to see in your life or in the life of someone else. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It grows in small, hidden ways, but God is still at work transforming things. The woman here is a picture of the life-transforming power of the gospel. But if we look around this room this morning, every single person who's here and who's put their trust in Jesus, you are a picture of the life-transforming power of the gospel as well. One of the most encouraging things about being a pastor in this church is seeing the way God's kingdom is breaking through in people's lives. Often in small ways, often in ways that that they don't even realize, that are hidden to so many other people. But the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is breaking through. People growing in righteousness, taking small steps in Jesus' direction. People whose heart for the lost is just expanding and growing. People whose boldness in sharing Jesus is deepening. Jesus is at work transforming lives and so we like these women this woman and these people we have reason to rejoice to trust in him to praise god because of him the kingdom of god jesus says it maybe starts like a mustard seed like a tiny bit of leaven small hidden but look how it grows and how it transforms lives and transforms this world in the most unexpected and incredible ways and jesus our king The king of this kingdom, he is the perfect illustration of that, isn't he? His life started in the smallest, most mustard seed-like way. Born in a stable in the middle of nowhere. He lived a hidden, uh, obscure life for 30 years. Applying his trade as a carpenter. And when he did finally begin his public ministry, he, he was rejected by many people, despised scorned, put to shame, and eventually he was killed on a criminal's cross. In the eyes of the world, Jesus Christ and his kingdom, it was a failure. A kingdom that was snuffed out before it even got going. But yet, we know the truth, that that was only the beginning. (laughs) Because even death itself could not hold this king. He backed up all the claims that he ever made because after three days in the tomb, he rose to glorious life again. And since that moment, the incredible growth and effect of his kingdom cannot be denied. He started with just 11 followers, but as the good news of this resurrected king spread, so did his kingdom. Life after life transformed throughout the ages. And what started with just 11 now has estimated to have maybe over 2 billion people who are following Jesus across the world. We have reason to be encouraged, don't we? We have reason to trust that that our investment in Jesus and his kingdom is a worthwhile one, one that is paying off. We know that Jesus Christ, he is the power to transform lives. And you know, one day, we will experience that transformed life in all of its fullness with him forever when he takes us into his kingdom to be with him in eternity. Will you stand with me now as I pray for us before we come to the communion table? Jesus, we thank you 
for your power, the power that you have to, to change things, to mend things which are broken, to bring life where there is death. Jesus, we thank you for um, examples like this in your word which remind us of how uh, you have the power to transform lives when, uh, Lord, we feel powerless, hopeless maybe, that you're the one that we can turn to. You're the one that offers us hope. Lord, I pray that for, for all of us today in this room, that each of us would see our great need of you, that we wouldn't uh, have hearts that are full of pride like the Pharisees who rejected you. They didn't want you in your kingdom. They didn't think they needed you. But Lord, I pray that every single one of us will realize that we are all in need of you. That if our lives are to be changed forever, that we need to come to you, trust in you, invest in you and your kingdom. Thank you that you're still in the business, Lord, of, of transforming lives today. And Lord, I pray that we will trust in, in the transforming power of your kingdom, that we will know that it does maybe start in, in small, unseen, hidden ways, but that you are at work in that, that you're changing things even when we can't see it, that your power is made manifest in our lives and in this world. Lord, I pray that we would trust in you, that we would come to you and ask for your help we would rely on your strength. And that would show, our, show itself in our lives, Lord, as we depend on your word, as we come and as we pray to you each day. Lord, make us a people that depend on you more and more. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ, for your compassion and tenderness towards us, and for your incredible power and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.